become spell weavers, reavers, rogues, and men at arms and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spell book, your bow, your rule book, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min maxers, horny bards, and blood soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role playing games here on Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome back to Rolling Bones with Ryan Howard, where we are making old school young again. I'm your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and tonight we are going to be talking about uh, a historical event that was very significant to European history and also to the history of the United States, very significant to my family's personal history, and uh, just something that's generally not talked a lot about even in academic circles, and that is the English Civil Wars. But this is not going to be strictly a history lesson, uh, because myself and DM Blackwall, we are going to be discussing the English Civil War in the context of how it can help you uh, implement sectarian conflict and uh, kind of religious strife in your tabletop games to create intrigue and create, uh, you know, situations where all kinds of shenanigans can happen that your player characters can get involved in. And uh, I am really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, again, like I said, this is a period of time uh, where a lot of significant consequences uh, kind of flow down from. This is one of the reasons why you have so much uh, English and Scottish colonialism in the United States. There's a whole lot to discuss tonight. Um, but before we get into that, uh, one, I want to remind everyone that if you haven't done so already, remember to go out and make a friend today. I know it's late for some of you, but remember to go out and make a friend today. It's not as hard as you might think it is. I also want to remind everyone uh, that you can find me on all of our various social media platforms. You can find me here on X and Instagram at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg. YouTube is Rollin' Bones and Twitch is twitch.tv slash Rollin' Bones Ryan. And of course, Substack is rollinbones.substack.com. Uh, just today, I posted my first ever uh, premium article, one that is uh, behind the paywall entirely. It is a preview and a playtest report of some of the stuff coming up in O Night Divine, my upcoming Christmas adventure, which is still scheduled to be released on December 25th. Uh, so you can find that over rollandbones.substack.com. I will put the link over here in chat. And also want to remind everyone that you can uh, support me by buying merch over on TeePublic. I've got some great designs up there on TeePublic, so if you enjoy that kind of stuff, uh, you can find that. also want to remind everyone that we have uh, DM Blackwall in the house tonight, so you can find his game Horde Wars Basic over at Big Geek Emporium. Uh, it is doing quite well over there. It is a really great game. Last time he was on the show, we actually created a character together. Uh, you can still find that over on YouTube, but if you haven't already, go check out DM Blackwall's 
uh, Horde Wars Basic. It is a really cool, really fun game. And uh, I really appreciate you guys not just supporting me, but supporting my guests. And before we bring on the man of the hour, I want to remind everyone to like, share, and subscribe if you enjoy what we are doing here. So without further ado, let's bring on the expert, the uh, historian who is going to be helping us in this conversation. Uh, like I said, he is the creator of Horde Wars Basic. You guys know him and love him. Welcome back to Rolling Bones, DM Blackwall. Good to be here. Uh, my main qualification for this discussion is uh, I've read a bunch of, of Cromwell's writing, uh, mostly letters he wrote during the period um, to a whole bunch of people that were collected about 30 years after his death and then published. Yep. Yep. And, and I salute you for having knowledge of the primary sources because I don't. And, uh, a lot of people who engage in these conversations about history, especially nowadays, don't. There's there, there seems to be this allergy to actually understanding the people of time periods past in the context of their period. There's always kind of this approach now of the past was bad and we can't understand these people in their context we have to understand them in our cultural context so you know we don't need to know what they were thinking or we don't need to read what they were saying because they were lying or racist or you know whatever it was that you you want to kind of paint people of the past with yeah, yeah. so what did you want to talk about first right i think to uh start the conversation uh what was kind of your first examination or, you know, reading on this particular subject? Where were you first exposed to kind of, you know, knowledge of the English Civil War? Uh, well, I first learned about it in school. Um, I was uh, at the time um, pursuing a social studies group major, which included a history minor. And so I I got to study this both in um, high school and in college. Um, but my own reading of the primary sources was fairly recent. It was actually during the pandemic when I wound up with a bunch more free time than I would normally have. Um, because my work at the time was security work and there were a bunch of people just not doing anything for months or a year or more. And so I was able to uh, do significantly more reading and listening to podcasts than I had ever um, uh, previously. And so during that time, I read a, uh, I, I read through uh, several of Julius Caesar's books, and I read through um, this collection of Cromwell's writings and a bunch of other things as well. Gotcha. Um, but. As a, as a general um, understanding of the period, I think what, what drew me to it, what got me interested in it, is actually the 1632 book series by uh, Eric Flint, and I'm trying to remember the other guy, David Weber. It's a fictional series, but it begins in a historical context and then diverges. It's historical fiction. Mm -hmm. Right, and so so he adds a sci-fi element, but before then everything is true to history and then stuff diverges. 
anyway, that got me really interested in the period. Like this is a time period where uh, Shakespeare is alive, where the Thirty Years' War uh, is raging in Europe, one of the most destructive wars probably in history, um, other, other than the world wars. And then <clears throat> at the same time, um, you've got uh, the Roman Catholic Church's last gasp at um, uh, political domination of the, of the planet is really what they were going for. Um, if they had managed to win as one of these, these this series of conflicts, um, it is very likely that they would have returned to their previous policy of trying to split the world among like uh, countries like uh, Portugal and Spain. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with that idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. At this time, you you really are dealing with. Um kind of this this idea of mass reconquista uh cuz again to to remind everyone what's going on in Europe at this time you're about 100 years removed from the reformation so the the reformation has had 100 years plus to spread all throughout Europe it's really taken hold in Germany it's really taken hold in Switzerland and Sweden specifically and there was a little bit of a reformation in England. There was a major reformation in Scotland. And we find ourselves in the situation where England is kind of weak tea Protestant at this point, because with apologies to anyone out there who might be an Anglican, uh, all Anglicanism really is, is diet Catholicism that Henry VIII had invented so that he could get divorced. There's not a whole lot of actual like tradition to, to Anglicanism uh, to, to be blunt about it. It's, it's really just yeah. Catholicism with divorces. Uh, yeah, that, that's a fair assessment. And so you, you've got this uh, major religious position of the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is essentially a revolving door of, you know, what, politically powerful zealot uh, can can push their agenda on the uh, congregants of the Anglican Church or the Church of England, as it was called at the time. And you end up with a uh, an Arminian as the Archbishop of Canterbury, which really pisses off the uh, Calvinists, uh, both the Presbyterian variety and the kind of Congregationalist uh, Puritan variety. Uh, that that was really kind of taking hold in England. And oh, oh. for those in, who aren't familiar, basically, <clears throat> Arminians and Calvinists um, are arguing about understanding um, how and why things happen in Scripture. They're generally both Christians, mm -hmm. uh, as far as like salvation through Christ um uh the afterlife the creation of the world pretty much major doctrines their arguments are about things like uh free will versus predestination yep yep absolutely and uh as someone from the uh the calvinist tradition um you you kind of know where my loyalties lie there but uh yeah you, you find this um 
this all kind of comes together under a king, uh, King Charles I, who is nominally Protestant. He is of the Stuart line, which is the Scottish, uh, you know, fr from the Scottish royal family. Uh, so nominally Protestant, nominally Presbyterian. He is of the line of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was a Presbyterian. So you have a guy who on paper is supposed to be Protestant friendly, but in practice is very much um, really not devout in any sense of the word. He ends up marrying a very strongly Catholic uh, French queen, which really upsets the uh, the the Parliament, which at this point was largely made up of Puritans and uh, you know Calvinist oh. Protestants. Yeah, so so at this point, right? So this is a, a a couple monarchs after Queen Elizabeth. That's helpful for 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 those of you who are familiar with her reign. Mm -hmm. um, so when Queen Elizabeth died, her cousin became the king of both England and uh, Scotland. He had been the king of Scotland. This is that cousin's son. Yeah, yeah, and so Charles at this point is officially king of um, England, Scotland, and Ireland. Um, separately, not under one another, like as separate entities. Mm. The problem is uh, the Irish are militantly Catholic. The yeah. Scottish are mostly militantly Presbyterian. And then the English are anti-Catholic and kind of split amongst a bunch of different groups. What winds up rising to the top eventually are the Puritans. Um, yeah. But that is not terribly clear at the beginning of his reign. Mm -hmm. But anti-Catholic, that they all could get behind pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And then over in Europe, to kind of tie that back in, you have this active reconquista in the form of the Thirty Years' War you have the French Huguenots fighting the predominantly Catholic majority in France. Uh, you have uh, Gustavus Adolphus and his uh, descendants from Sweden uh, kind of carrying the torch for Swedish Lutheranism. Um, and which, the Danes, too, intermittently. Yep, the, the Danes as well. And and the Dutch. Uh, shout out to our friend Victor Gorchev. <laughs> and... The Germans are also at this point kind of split because you still have the the Holy Roman Empire, but you also have the Lutherans, and so that's basically it's a it's a war in continental Europe between the the Catholics and the uh, Lutherans, with a little bit of Calvinism thrown in uh, in you know the Netherlands and Switzerland, and that spills over into England where you have. Um, Noble Catholics, there's a lot of Catholics amongst the nobility who want Charles I to send support to the Catholics in mainland Europe. And then you have the Protestant uh, parliament that does not want to be conscripted to go over and kill their, their brethren in Christ. And uh, th this is... And ones who also want to side with the Swedes and help them directly. Yeah. Yeah. And so as a result, Charles I does nothing. 
Yeah. And so he's sitting on a powder keg of people that can't get along. Yeah. And he won't make a decision um, uh, as far as where his loyalties lie religiously. Mm-hmm. And this eventually results in um, a series of wars. Um, yeah. And because he couldn't be trusted to keep his word as his life busily demonstrated, um, he wound up getting himself executed. <laughs> yes, he through did. Through a series of betrayals. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and a refusal to compromise or even just make a commitment when given the opportunity repeatedly. Yeah. Um, I mean, the man did things like surrendering to one of these kingdoms, Scotland in this case, who then traded him to the English. <laughs> and then he made an alliance with Scotland. Like this was not a wise man. Mm-hmm. He could have yeah. started with that. He could have started allying with the Scots, but no. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, he's um, he's largely a buffoon. And the, the history has kind of history's been very kind to Charles the First, in spite of all of this, because a lot of people uh, will compare him favorably to the man who ultimately succeeded him as the uh, the the ruler of England, and that is one Oliver Cromwell. So I, I think we should talk a little bit about uh, the the man that is Cromwell, uh, as any discussion of the English Civil War without speaking on him would be incomplete. That's fair, though a great deal of the uh, winning for the parliamentarian army and for the new model army was was up until the execution of the of the king was really thomas fairfax with mm-hmm. cromwell as second in command or as commander of cavalry yeah and fairfax interestingly was the younger man by about 13 years but was actually the senior general and it wasn't until they uh wound up Parliament wound up executing Charles, that Fairfax essentially um, retired uh, from political life for about 20 years, and Cromwell became dominant. Now, it's not terribly clear to me that this was whether or not he was forced out or whether or not he was, in fact, disgusted with how things went. That's, I I, I couldn't say. I haven't read his personal writings. Mm-hmm. But um, Cromwell then was the senior ranking military officer left and proceeded to win the subsequent series of wars um, against uh, Charles' son, uh, which was, I believe, also Charles, Charles II. Yeah, Charles II. And against the Irish uprising uh, and against the Scots, who both declared Charles II to be their king. in some cases, I think in both cases, repeatedly as things turned out. But um, anyway, so that's uh, but that was that was really when Cromwell um, took off. But as a military commander, once he was actually in charge, um, he was effective. Um, he he won a lot of battles. He lost some, but he, he won most battles. Mm-hmm. And um, also, as a general rule. Um, you probably didn't want to surrender to him 
uh, <laughs> at least if you were Irish. Because mm -hmm. that dude slaughtered garrison after garrison. To be yeah. fair, the first one repeatedly refused to surrender. And as far as standards of the time goes, once they did that uh, two or three times and the wall was breached and it was clear it was over, uh, then that would be a fairly normal response. Yep. However, he kept doing it after that, yep. um, which was not normal. Uh, and he commented, I don't remember his phrasing exactly, but it was something like, he basically, he basically commented that it was better to do it now, to have them bleed now, than to have continual fighting on and on and on. He wanted to just end the wars. Yep. Yeah, he wanted he wanted the uh, he wanted the the general Patton uh, march all the way to Moscow approach. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was it was a it was brutal, and it was quite a mess. The English Civil War. I yeah. mean, if you read about like the communications problems, frequently armies were marching within, you know a dozen miles of each other and then suddenly realizing the other was there. Yeah. Um, there were um, pockets that were on one side or another just scattered throughout the country. It, it would be like, well, it would be a lot like if um, uh, Democrats, Republicans and independents, three different groups were all militant and suddenly went to war just wherever they were. I mean, that's basically what happened to England. There were mm -hmm. two or three different groups that all went to war and they weren't geographically distinct. And right. it took years of fighting to even get that sorted out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, which is why you see when, when you look at a map and this is one of the things, um, even though I don't personally subscribe to uh, kind of their view of history and, and I have a lot of questions about uh, you know, their, their sources of funding, uh, the, the Kings and generals YouTube channel, um, they have a three and a half hour documentary and then several smaller videos kind of outlining the blow by blow of the English civil war. And when you look at their map of kind of how the sides were divided up, you, you get these kind of weird chunks and enclaves of you know, here's this big, giant uh, Protestant territory, parliamentarian territory down here in the south with little spots of royalists. And then up north is a giant um, cavalier uh, royalist enclave, but the Scots are right on top of them. And it, it, there's all kinds of just kind of odd geographical divides between the different sides. And that's Kind of ultimately, I think what did it in for the royalists was just how scattered they were. Uh, that and the lack of discipline for their cavalry. Yeah. Battle after battle that the royalists almost won. They were winning. Their, their cavalry would scamper off the field chasing one group or another, and then the battle would turn and their cavalry wouldn't be there to help bail them out. Mm -hmm. This happened, I think, something like half a dozen times. And it was the same guy in charge of the cavalry basically every time. Mm -hmm. it was, uh, uh, Prince Rupert, if yeah, I recall. Prince, Prince Rupert, that's correct. Who was the king's cousin or something. Yeah. And uh, 
he might have been a competent cavalry commander, but he did not maintain discipline. And unlike him, Oliver Cromwell did. Yeah. And battle after battle, as the Civil War progressed, the parliamentary and cavalry successfully um, rallied after pushing the, pushing an enemy off the field, reorganized, and then charged back into the fray. Mm-hmm. And the Royalist cavalry just wasn't able to do it. Yeah. Yeah, and that also speaks to one of the kind of dividing dividing lines of the English Civil War is it really was the nobility versus the parliament. But at the time, because they hadn't made this rule yet, the the House of Commons, as it's now known, was largely made up of military leaders. A lot of the Puritans were um, well, military kind, leaders. Kind of, though. You have to yeah. remember that Parliament itself included a bunch of nobles, including yeah. Thomas Fairfax and including Oliver Cromwell. Mm-hmm. They just weren't high nobles. Right. They were landed gentry, though. They were gentlemen who mm-hmm. had who were independently wealthy. Cromwell was actually one of the poorest um, uh, for his time at about... Uh, when he when he was a young man, uh, he had an estate that earned him about three hundred pounds a year. Now I don't know what that translates into into today's money with inflation and such, but it, he was he was on the more broke end of the gentry. Yeah. But, but that yeah, but that, it, so it was really minor nobles versus major more. Yes. Um. But you. Yeah. You kind of see the divide in the way that like commands are structured because you have these very uh, seasoned, battle-hardened officers that are more on the Protestant side, whereas the the noble officers, I, I mean, or the the high noble officers rather, you you, you kind of see that war was a, a bit of a lark for them. You know, they're, they're very much larping at being soldiers, whereas the Protestants act more like actual soldiers. Well, that was the interesting thing. Rupert was actually a 15-year veteran or something of mm-hmm. the 30 Years' War. He'd been fighting for over a decade on the continent successfully. Yeah. Um, so I think probably the idea of the new model army, I think that was probably true. The idea, um, not that anyone had never that had never occurred to anyone to be more disciplined. No, that had happened a bunch. But mm-hmm. in England anyway... It seems that the Protestants focus on uh, discipline and restraint and um, uh, command and control really paid off for them in war. Yep. Um, in a way that just that wasn't mostly seen on the continent, other than occasionally with the Swedes when when Gustav Adolphus was alive. Yep. Yep, and it's. Um... You also you, you get to see a bit of a transition in warfare in this war partic- in particular where you go from parliament having to raise armies and the you know the king having to raise armies in kind of the old medieval fashion to mm-hmm. the new model army as you mentioned being a standing professional army at least until it's disbanded for the first time. Yes. Yeah that that was really an, that was really an interesting shift. Yeah. Uh, for the English. And again, it's not the first time anyone had a standing army, but it is 
probably the first time in a long time that Britain had had a standing army. Yeah. And and you'll see that become the norm as you know the the 17th century turns into the 18th century especially with the rise of the Prussians who really reinvent this idea of the standing professional army and become the the gold standard but England does continue this especially uh, it's more of a naval tradition with the English moving forward but you know as history moves on and England and Prussia and these other kind of regions in in Europe gain more influence you see them adopt this model of a standing professional army yeah yeah and it and in, in terms of the battlefield performance, especially in the cavalry, it was notable. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of the historical context. Like it, it was a mess, and a lot of the production of weapons and arms of various sorts, armor, um, was scattered throughout the country. Mm-hmm. And so when I was reading in Cromwell's letters, uh, at first it's him organizing like his little local area. He's not part of the larger conflict yet. And so it's him basically trying to get one county organized and under control. And then they're they're going off and fighting in the neighboring counties or, or waiting to hear what's going on in the larger war and there's a lack of information. It's yeah. very interesting to, 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 to read. I mean, the guy did wind up ending as um, a tyrant uh, in the sense that he did the thing that ultimately he rebelled against he had rebelled against a king who disbanded parliament unlawfully. And what did he do? He unlawfully disbanded parliament (laughs) when he was in charge. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, So he wasn't any better uh, uh, as far as that went. Yep. Yeah. You guys may have seen me post memes about Cromwell and how, how based he is. I mean, like I gave him the, the thug life sunglasses and the thumbnail here. I did the, (laughs) I did the hostel Gatto meme about Cromwell being born cool, but you know, Cromwell had his issues as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, and he did generally speaking, try to appeal to his enemies up front, try to make peace with them, try to work with them. But pretty much after the first try, maybe the second, uh, he would just kill you. Yes. (laughs) If if you weren't on board. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's when you look at like you know Solomon Kane as an example, kind of the the most popular uh, fictional Puritan. You can see a lot of this uh, kind of Cromwellian energy in Solomon Kane. You can easily imagine that Solomon Kane at some point uh, rode in the Parliamentarian cavalry. In fact, I'm I'm pretty sure uh, some attempts at giving Solomon Cain an origin story, have him be a veteran of the English civil war. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as far as the, the religious context though, the, the goofy part, the way this winds up ending, right. Yeah. Isn't just, of course, with Charles getting himself executed through stubbornness and betrayal, his betrayal of others mostly, but, um, and his son becoming king, what's interesting to me is that the, um, in effect, 
the Scottish Presbyterians won. They just didn't know it for about 40 years. <laughs> yep. And the reason is because when William of Orange finally wound up becoming um, co-ruler of England, overthrowing his father-in-law, um, this is in the, uh, I'm going to say the 1580s or so, or no, 1680s or so. Um, he was he was part of the, he, he was a Calvinist who were in communion with the Scottish Presbyterians. They recognized each other as members of the same church. And I know that because behind me, I have a book that was printed in 1643 uh, that is that was printed in the Netherlands in English to acknowledging the Presbyterian Church as um, uh, part, part of the same um, uh, universal church. Mm -hmm. Yep, and it's, it's kind of out of that context that you get uh, a document that I still hold uh, to, to be uh, binding and, and something that I, you know, have taken an oath to as a member of the Presbyterian Church of America, and that is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, which kind of canonizes uh, Calvinist doctrine within the Church of England, at least until they decided to stop doing that. <laughs> yes. Yes. But th there are still denominations that hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith, and, and mine is one of them. So, um, you know, that, that context of, you know, all of this fighting... Uh, which produces this document that, you know, I still have read and, you know, have memorized several of the catechism questions and stuff. That's something that kind of resonates with me uh, today. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they lost the war, of course. Cromwell was, was victorious, but mm -hmm. Cromwell's victory lasted like three years after his death. That's it. And then the monarchy was restored. And then proceeded to um, fail to breed itself uh, with any heirs and uh, was uh, supplanted by the uh, by a husband and wife duo uh, the the lady being the daughter of one of the one of the kings but they had a series of like brothers inheriting from each other because mm -hmm. none of them had kids at least ones that lived yeah so it the story ended weird uh, but the period itself, uh, would have been a terrible time to be alive um, yeah. as far as if you were just a common person trying to live your life quietly. This England was not where to live. Mm -hmm. And honestly, the rest of Europe is not much better, which is why you see so many people flee Europe in droves, particularly. And this is where, you know, not, not to keep bringing the conversation back to me, but this is where my family uh, history kind of comes from uh, because my family were Ulster Scots and we haven't talked a little bit about this because it's a very small piece of the kind of grand totality of the English Civil War um, but the Ulster Plantation was constantly under assault from the Irish it was just periods of the Irish uh, converging on the Scottish settlers in Ulster uh, who were Presbyterian, whereas the, as, as we know, the Irish were and, and still are at least nominally Catholic. Mm. Um, they would come in, they would 
uh, you know, beat up on the Ulster Scots until England would send over uh, soldiers or the Covenanters would would come over and and help out their their brothers in Ulster. Then there'd be peace, and then there was war again. Uh, so a lot of them just decided we're gonna go to the Carolinas and we're gonna farm tobacco, and that's the, that's where my family comes into the picture. The irony is that Cromwell wound up deporting tens or possibly hundreds of thousands of Irish to the New World as well. Yeah. Uh, as part of his effort to not have any further wars, he basically, the soldiers whose surrender were accepted or other people that the, the English captured uh, were deported uh, essentially as slaves. Indentured servants who typically couldn't earn their freedom. So that's just slaves. Yeah, and, and that's something, again, that's because of the, the way that narratives now apparently have to be written, what a lot of people don't realize is a lot of the Irish and a lot of the Scots arrived in the New World in chains. Yeah. But that's not talked about because it doesn't fit into the little tidy box of what uh, court historians have decided slavery was. Yeah, no, that was that was um, that was a a typical way to deal with um, enemies that wasn't just murdering them. Yeah, uh, this wasn't unique to um, the English Civil War. Uh, it wasn't unique to even um, Europeans. I mean, um, the Assyrians did the exact same thing deporting whole populations and splitting them up so that they wouldn't be a military threat later. Yep. The, the Romans also practiced this uh, heavily. Yeah. Although the Romans would also like, if you upset them enough, would just march in and, and slaughter you as well. <clears throat> see yeah. Jerusalem. Yeah. I, I see John's comment there. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. It is. Yeah. Uh, it. I I will say, even though even though I've made Cromwell memes and uh, definitely fall on the Protestant side of this, I, I understand as someone who believes that a person's confessional heritage is sacrosanct. I, I understand where you're coming from, John. Yeah, he was, he was, I, I suspect doing everything he could to provoke anyone who might fight into fighting him then. Yep. So we, we've talked a lot about the Civil War itself. Sure. Um, to, to kind of pivot into the, the topic of role-playing games, um, I, I think it should be apparent from this conversation how, uh, you know, taking some of these ideas and, and porting them over to a fantasy world could be uh, interesting for campaigns. But let's, let's talk a little bit about this because, Oh yeah. I, I don't know about yourself, but I've, I've found that a lot of people tend to shy away from using religion as a massive, like motivator of happenstance in role-playing games. I think it's because people don't understand religion anymore they don't understand the concept of being so devoted to a religion that you 
are willing to fight and die for it anymore. So a lot of people just kind of ignore it. It's basically, this is how my cleric gets superpowers, and that's the only thing they do with it. <laughs> right. So, I mean, you've got a, you've got a few different... Um... You've got a few different kind of levels of of conflict. Uh, re simple religious conflicts very easy. Um, the idea of um, we're going to kill those creatures because they're evil, um, hmm. not because they're you know like uh, uh, say you've got goblins who are eating children or something. That's that's a pretty easy moral question. Should you should you stop them um, or killing zombies or this kind of thing? It's not a hard moral question. It's a more it's a more difficult moral question, though, if it's other people like yourself, um, other humans or, or demi humans, people who who are who have a soul, who are like you, and mm -hmm. they don't uh, agree with you about something that you find very important. Now, whether this is about um, what the right thing to do is, I'll give you an example. Uh, is it right to um, Kill the unborn, yes or no? Well, that today is a point of religious conflict in our country. That's yep. that's a point of political and religious discussion and disagreement. Well, you can you can imagine this, but writ, writ large, and if you've got people who are really dedicated to both ideas, you'd have one group who's out murdering children in the womb, and you'd have another group who's out killing those people. That's that's what you would get in a in a real um, religious sectarian uh, uh, violence over that issue if you would stuck it in a role playing game. Yep, you'd have you'd have essentially um, uh, civil and religious strife until one side won out, or until a third party seized power and was able to pacify both groups. Yep, um, and that's that's what you'll see in history. And what the thing they're fighting about is can vary wildly. I mean, uh, Charles here was basically fighting for the divine right of kings, if he can be said to have been fighting for anything. Yeah. No one agreed with him in, in England or Scotland. Not really. It was just varying degrees of disagreement. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and the Presbyterians, right, were fighting for largely Calvinist religious beliefs. But that isn't true um, for the Puritans. They were similar, but not the same. Right. And the Irish wanted, did not like either of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so you've got this, you've got basically three or four, depending on how you count, major religious viewpoints all in what was all, all united in one man. And then when he died, united in his son as the point of conflict. I mean, you could really have a lot of fun with that in a role-playing game, I think. Yeah. Um, for example, you could have, if you, wanted, if you wanted paragons of this, you could have a king who believes one thing, one, one religious view. You could have his wife believe another. And then you could have the king's closest advisor um, be the head of a third religious view. And you would, you would create that powder keg, but you'd also give them... Uh, individual leaders for the players to interact with. Yeah. And to, to get metaphysical here for a minute, because both of us are religious individuals. We, you know, we, we both 
are openly religious. Um, yeah. And also because tabletop games allow for you to reach this metaphysical level, you know, in D and D in particular, you can visit hell, you can fight demons. So I think both of us would probably agree that what you have in the English civil war is a horrible conflict between people who should agree because at the end of the day, whether uh, congregationalist Presbyterian or Catholic, hopefully everyone believes that uh, Christ was the son of God, the savior of sinners and that he was fully God and fully man and that he died for our sins and is a living savior that was resurrected. And so any division sowed amongst people who believe those fundamental truths comes from the enemy. So to, yeah. to take this yeah, that back, belief should have been enough. Yeah. To, to take this back into the realm of D and D maybe you can have in your campaign world, a demon or a creature from some other realm that is planting seeds of discontent amongst people with religious differences that should otherwise get along, but because there is this manipulator factor involved, this uh, uh, this worm tongue type figure that you have injected into your into your game, they're not getting along, and there's a massive war as a result of the manipulation of oh, yeah. a third metaphysical force. Oh yeah, no, that can be a lot of fun. And to address John's question, uh, it wasn't so much that the um, or or comment. It wasn't so much that the king had no supporters. He did. He definitely did. It was that even his supporters did not generally agree that he could do whatever he wanted in all circumstances, which was essentially the view he was arguing. Even the people who were fighting for him in the war mostly didn't actually agree with that. Um, and you can tell both from their writings and from the times when they were fighting against him, because almost everyone at some point fought against him because he, as I said, kept switching sides essentially. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, in a, in a role-playing game, I think that also the lack of information, the localized production of arms, um, the, uh, the confusion that a um, country or continent-wide conflict can have in an era without instantaneous communications is uh, is something you can really play up. You can have rumors coming in about how things are going, but until you see get someone who, who arrives who is in an actual battle, uh, it may be uh, weeks or months before your players, unless they go adventuring, if they stay in one area before they even know what's really happening. And that, that seems to have been the experience for quite a lot of people during this time. Um, not just in the English Civil War, but also in the Thirty Years' War. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then just to, to shout out one of my friends here and, and someone that I've been working a lot with, uh, Wonky here in chat, um, he and I have had a lot of conversations about the concept of... Uh, a, a demon or some kind of other evil entity masquerading as a, uh, a, a good or lawful God. And that kind of concept in a, in a campaign setting. And you can definitely see, um, 
Sure, like in Revelation. Yeah, you you can definitely see echoes of that in um, the the English Civil War. You can see this uh, this idea of people think both sides definitely thought that they were fighting for the greater good in in some sense, and ultimately they weren't uh, because you know the the God would never have us uh, you know killing our brethren. Yeah, that is the the tragedy of um, Oliver Cromwell. If you read his early writing, he seems to have been, I mean, a fairly nice guy who cared about other people and was trying to persuade them to follow God and to follow Christ. And that is not how things ended. Mm -hmm. as, yeah. uh, as time went on, he became more merciless. Definitely. Now, another interesting aspect that I think um, can can really make for an interesting concept to explore in in role playing um, after this period of time, after the English Civil War, uh, as you have with pretty much any period where uh, a, a long running war ends, and now you have a period of peace, you have battle-hardened, experienced fighting men with no more wars to fight. And so you have this question of what do these men do with themselves? In the case of the English Civil War, a lot of them got on ships and became privateers and turned into what we now know as the Caribbean pirates. Um, in the case of a role-playing game, you now have opportunities to create new factions of you know these soldiers let's say let's say you're playing in a game where something similar to the english civil war has just occurred so now you have these kind of wandering droves of fighting men with you know nothing to do no more wars to fight what do those guys do with themselves well there there was more conflict in the new world for the fighting men of the english civil war uh, so are they now going to pick fights with other nations? Are they going to just wander around and become bandit chieftains? Um, you have oh, yeah. this kind of, you know, rich uh, kind of oh. field of, of adversaries to draw from now that you have, um, again, battle-hardened, experienced fighting men with no more wars to fight. Well, one, one goofy thing that did happen is... Bermuda, of all places, held out until two years before the end of this period as loyalists to the king. <laughs> and they managed to get a separate peace. And their parliament uh, never got overthrown, which has resulted in the parliament of Bermuda being one of the longest sitting parliaments in history. Mm -hmm. Just a Just a weird... Because they managed to make peace without having to fight the parliamentarian faction because they held out for so long and had really quite good defenses. Mm -hmm. um, just a, just a, just a goofy thing. And then they of course became one of the hubs for the privateers. Yep. Uh, or continued to be. Mm -hmm. um, but you also had the, um, uh, a, a, a subsequent, uh, group of wars, um, although shorter ones mostly take place, um, 
including between the English and the Dutch. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so I, I think a lot of them, I think a lot of them wound up, from what I can tell, settling, a lot of them wound up settling down, but a fair number went into mercenary or privateering work, like you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Percy Block here in chat uh, formed private military companies. Yeah, it, you can you can have a lot of fun with kind of creating your medieval PMCs in that regard. Uh, oh, those were common. Yeah, in in the period, for sure. Like mercenary companies, some with a history going for uh, dozens, some for hundreds of years. Yeah, that was a thing. I mean, that's basically what the it's basically what the Hessians were. Now that that's a, a century later, but. True, true. Paid troops. Yep. <laughs> but no, you had you had named companies who had, you know, who 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 had who had officers, and they were um, typically paid the officer by the number of men who showed up mm -hmm. uh, at the. Uh, you know how we have have military parades and drills and stuff where you show off the brigade or that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That tradition originates from a review to determine how many men there were to figure out how much to pay the Colonel. <laughs> nice. When you I were paid it. by your head count, by the men you could bring to battle. Mm-hmm. Yep. And as uh, Percy Block points out, the Vatican Swiss Guard are also mercenaries or were mercenaries, I guess. I technically they... not anymore, but. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it it's an idea. And, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation is. I talk a lot about how people need to get back to this tradition of uh you know the clash of arms being the ultimate goal of D D, and you know you, you see the bro sr talking about you know building up to um massive pitched battles with giant armies you, you see this conversation kind of happening over and over again and what a lot of people wonder is how do you get to that point you know how in your campaign world do you create a situation where now you have massive armies that are fighting each other and, as, as, you know, as you can see from, from history, one of the fastest ways to get something like that going is some kind of sectarian conflict. Um, you don't even need, like, a war of succession to, to jumpstart something like that. You, you need uh, just you know, religious differences, and they can even be minor religious differences to kick off a full-scale war. Yeah, and when you add in cultural as well, so the English Civil War, we didn't even talk about the Welsh, who were at this point largely part of England, mm -hmm. but were typically royalist. And so they had to be conquered and, 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 and kind of put down to prevent them from siding, continuing to provide the king with troops. Yep. And um, but but you're you're adding in, there's at least four distinct cultures involved in this war as well in these series of wars yeah as well as three or four distinct religious viewpoints like that's quite a mess those those places wouldn't naturally be part of the same kingdom 
Mm -hmm. Left to their own devices, the Welsh would clearly have rather governed themselves. Yeah. The Scots, too. And the same for the Irish. It was only because of intermarriage, death, and succession laws that they wound up, uh, and some conquest, that they wound up as under a single monarch. Yep. And yep. it didn't seem like any of them really liked it that much. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and even even to this day, even you know, up until... I believe it was 2016 was the the last time there was a, a stay remain or a a secede remain vote for Scotland um, in the yeah. United Kingdom. So even today, there's there's seeds of uh, the Scottish and the Welsh and the Irish not wanting to be subjects of uh, the United Kingdom anymore. Right. Yeah. So it's it's very interesting um, how that how that all came about. Um. And, you know, Char Charles' dad was smarter than him, demonstrably. Yeah. In that he managed to keep the peace mm -hmm. among all these factions. And Charles couldn't even ultimately keep one group on his side permanently. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is just crazy. Like if he had just gone, yep, I'm pro-Catholic, Catholic all the way, that would have helped more than yeah. what he actually did or Presbyterian, or Puritan, or anything at all. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, very surprising to me um, that he didn't learn. His son did. His son learned. His son basically pardoned everyone who did, wasn't egregiously uh, loyal uh, to, the, uh, to the parliamentarian cause. I mean... Parliamentarian generals helped him take over, including the formerly retired Thomas Fairfax, Cromwell's former superior, um, including uh, George Monk, I think his name was, and a number of other prominent leaders. They actually are the ones who invited him back to take over. Mm -hmm. After having not only defeated his father in war, but having defeated him when he was declared the king uh, Charles II of both Scotland and Ireland, they they beat him and drove drove him off. The <laughs> same guys wound up going, yeah, you, you know, actually, you probably should have been king. <laughs> yeah, just uh, and, and he most he he had a fairly peaceful transition of power, which um, which was which was pretty cool. Mm. I don't know what did you what did you think of that how it how it how it ends. Ultimately, it, it does kind of come down to this uh, exercise in futility. Just you know, all of these, all these lives spent, all of this bloodshed, uh, just nothing. for Cromwell to become a dictator, and then turns out, hey, we were wrong. We want to bring the king back. Yeah, the funny part is that son of Cromwell's. It was like his third or fourth son uh, who became Lord Protector after him briefly. Mm -hmm was the longest lived ruler of England until Elizabeth II. Now he wasn't ruler, of course, for most of that time. Mm -hmm. He lived on the continent for most of his life, but he died at the age of 85, mm -hmm. um, which was which was quite quite rare. And he, he had the record 
for the longest lived ruler of England until Queen Elizabeth. Yep. But yeah, it's, it's a positively fascinating period of history. And then there, there's one more thing I want to discuss. Um, and, and this is something that I just want to discuss briefly. Um, since we are kind of at the end of our time here, the technology that is used in this particular era of history is something that I personally find extremely fascinating. Oh, like the wheel locks. Well, yeah, we're, we're dealing with, with wheel lock pistols, but you, you have in this period, this fusion between the old way and the new way where you still have armored pikemen and you still have heavy use of swords and pole arms and hand-to-hand -hand combat, uh, in these massive pitched battles, but you also have artillery and musketeers and uh, you, you have dragoons that are using uh, early carbines. So there's, there's a lot of innovative and interesting technology. And this is, this is the, uh, the transition point from ancient warfare to modern warfare in a lot of ways. Oh, from, from medieval to, to modern. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's pretty cool. I think uh, the War of the Roses is probably better for that. If you want to play like uh, most medieval style role playing games, there's less rules you'd have to mess with to to emulate that mm -hmm. period. Um, the English Civil Wars, you definitely are leaning much more into firearms. Yes, um, though not exclusively. Uh, saber charges still very much a thing. Just typically. After you'd done your, you, you'd emptied all your pistols. <laughs> You're like, well, okay, they haven't broken. Fine, let's charge. Um, but uh, and the armor, of course, changed. You were you were having a farther, far greater emphasis on uh, buff coats or uh, brigandines compared to like plate armor. Yeah. Like if you were a, a wealthy nobleman, you weren't in full plate. You were you were in a buff coat or you had a, a brigandine on to protect yourself, mm -hmm. which is. Interesting. Um, it showed that to some extent um, um, the mobility was more important. Yep. And um, and as far as pikes go, do you know the last time uh, that I'm aware of that pikes were were raised for war? If I'm not mistaken, uh, th there were. Well, I know for a fact there um, the Alabama regulars. Uh, in the Confederacy, you got it. Uh, we're, we're heavily armed with pikes at one point, just because they—that's yep. what they had. That 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 is the last time I'm aware of of anyone deliberately raising a force of pikes. And so, you know, we're not we're not too far off of that here with the English Civil War—a couple hundred years, mm -hmm. maybe three hundred. But uh, they were definitely on the way out. But the pikes and the cavalry were very much where it was at as far as winning winning the battle. Um, if you, if you look at most of these battles, it was the press of the pikes or it was the wheeling of the cavalry that, that tended to decide the day. It wasn't typically the guys with the guns, which is, which is not what you'd see now. Right. Or the guys with the long arms, I should say the cavalry had pistols, but mm. yeah, just, uh, I, and I think it probably had to do with the rate of fire. I don't think you could, if I recall correctly, you couldn't, once you'd emptied the guns you had, 
you couldn't realistically get off more than a shot a minute. And I, I don't even think you could get that with wheel locks. Right. Yeah. It's not until it's really not until the, the flint lock and even uh, some would say the percussion, uh, the percussion lock guns that, that you get to where a trained soldier can fire. Uh, I think it was 10 shots a minute. Yeah. In the civil war was, was what doctrine uh, dictated from riflemen, but yeah. And that's yeah, it, quick enough to repel cavalry. Mm-hmm. Especially with bayonets on the end as well. Yep. But yeah, at this point, you weren't anywhere near 10, 10 aimed shots in a minute. You you were well, well afield of that. Yeah. And so you uh and so and so as a result, they didn't, I mean, they were impactful, but they weren't as impactful as 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 uh later in history. Right. Cannons, though, those oh, would yeah. sometimes win battles. Mm-hmm. Um and every once in a while, you'd get something goofy, like, uh, and it happened at least in one of the battles in the English Civil War, where um, soldiers from one army capture the cannon of the other army and start firing them at their own army. <laughs> and and this wasn't something the English trained for, it just happened in one battle, mm-hmm. whereas um, the Swedes did this on purpose. Like they actually cross-trained soldiers as artillerymen so that when they took enemy artillery, they could turn them on them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it but it happened at least once in the English Civil War. It was it was uh listening to the account of that battle, that was pretty funny. I'm just <laughs> like, really? You you're firing their own artillery at them. Okay. Hey, <laughs> you work with the tools you've got in front of you. <laughs> Yeah. Um, weird thing, though, artillery at the time, what you were trying to do was a grazing shot. You were trying to basically skip it like a stone across water, the ball, so it would go through multiple ranks of troops. Yep. Instead of, um, you know, hitting the target hard, uh, unless you were aiming for like a, a wall or something. But yep. in a, on a battlefield, you were trying to get like a essentially a skipping shot. And so you had to train as an artilleryman to shoot in a very odd way mm-hmm. to uh, to make that happen. Was that due to the just the the lack of velocity that cannons could get at that point? That's uh, because they weren't explosive rounds. That's fair. They're just balls, and so yeah. and so skipping through a bunch of enemy troops, you'll kill way more than just pounding down and hitting one spot. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool stuff, though. And if anyone is interested, I would love to do um, a a short campaign focused around this kind of technology, um, either of Horde Wars or of something else, Mm -hmm. uh, because it just it's a really cool thing. And the weapons uh, like the the pistols and the and the cannon are would be very impactful. But the firing rate means once you discharge it. That's it. You're switching to swords or bikes. Yep. Um, and I think I think that would be doable. Like that wouldn't be a hard hack in most uh, medieval role playing games. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and I will say for those of you who are uh, 
looking to to what uh, myself and Wonky are doing, we, we're very much kind of entrenched in this level of technology in in what we're working on for uh, for Guts and Glory, uh, Nighthaven in particular. Sweet, v- very much has uh, an early black powder feel to it. When are you going to be releasing that? So the the first adventure uh, we're going to be putting out. Uh, it'll actually be two adventures, one uh, written by by Wonky and one by myself. Uh, that'll come out on uh, December 25th. It'll be our Christmas present to everyone. And then uh, from there, we'll be looking at, you know, a couple adventures a year, depending on scheduling. Okay. And will they be sequels to one another? Um, so this one... Uh, because it's coming out on Christmas, uh, this one will be holiday themed. And uh, from there, we'll be looking at kind of, you know, sequels. Um, and, and we'll be talking a lot about this. Um, ne- next week, I'll be on Natural Ones. And I'm pretty sure Wonky will be joining me on Natural Ones. And then we're also going to go on Talking Crit with uh, Bad cool. Mike and Tankar to, to discuss this in the coming weeks. Oh, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. By the way, um, are you planning to come and uh, play in a one-shot at some point? I've invited would, you a couple times. I would love to. I just need to find... Because I've been crunching on getting this adventure done in time for Christmas. Sure. I haven't had a lot of time, so I, I will need to make time to join in a one-shot with you. All right. Well, if you if you hop on that, uh, that Gilded server... Mm-hmm. Um, the, the one I set up for Horde Wars. Yep. Um, we've got one shots scheduled and you can just see which ones are open. Sweet. So that'd be a lot of fun though. I'd love to do that with you as well. And if you get the chance, once you've got your adventure released, if you're if you're willing to run it, I'd love to give it a try. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, guys, that is going to do it for Rolling Bones this evening. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, Blackwell, do you have any further thoughts, anything you want to kind of close on or discuss? Sure. If you could put anything on a T-shirt, what would it be? <laughs> if I could put anything on a T-shirt, what would it be? Yes. Um, so we are we are in the season of, uh, of Christmas. So in that spirit, um, I'm going to revise an old answer of mine. Uh, and it will be... Uh, a cavalry charge uh, led by Jesus and Santa Claus in kind of a uh, kind of a Renaissance painting style. And the caption will say war on Christmas. <laughs> That's good. That's good. But beyond that, I would say in general, for a takeaway, um, uh, lack lack of information, uh, political and uh, sectarian conflict make for a very interesting um, campaign setting and uh, series of adventures. And in real life, this period of the English Civil Wars lasted for like 15 years. Yep. So you could have an entire campaign take place in the midst of a series of conflicts uh, focused around these kinds of um, religious and political themes. Yeah, definitely, definitely. 
Well, guys, uh, next week we will be having a uh, a, a very, very interesting and, and what I imagine will be a very spirited conversation and even debate uh, with myself, uh, Greg Lambert, uh, the creator of Ares Chronicles and Gelatinous Rube. And we will be talking about magic items. Uh, you, you guys have probably heard uh, Rube get in your face about magic items at some point. Uh, so we are going to be having a conversation about how to use magic items, how rare or how common they should be, uh, what economy should look like around magic items in D&D. And uh, this will be a very interesting conversation. And it's definitely one where uh, there's going to be a lot of strong opinions thrown around. So I hope you guys will join us uh, for that. Until then, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I am so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I will see you guys next time.